Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fanville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our way through God's Word. Now, if you're looking for a church home, a place to call your own, we invite you to come and to worship with us at Calvary. Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville is located at 1410 North Porter Road there in Fayetteville. If you want to find out more information about Calvary Church, you can go to calvaryfayetteville.com or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com and we'd be happy to share with you about what God is doing at Calvary. Now, you might need to call us. You can do that by reaching out at 479-442-4634. Today, Pastor Kirk is taking a break from our study through the book of Ephesians with a message entitled, Here We Stand from 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 12. Let's listen together. You thought I was going to say Ephesians. You were already open to Ephesians. Your Bible had already fallen open to that book, right? Well, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, a couple of verses today. I love Old Testament stories. Do you? I, I just always have, ever since I was just a little guy. I love the stories. I'm caught up in the stories. I'm always challenged and blessed, sometimes mystified uh, by the events that God has chosen to record and to put into His Word. And there have been more than once that I've thought, Lord, you know, maybe it would have been better if you had not told that story. You know, uh, that one's kind of rough. That one's kind of ugly. That one's kind of, uh, kind of hard to understand. But I think also there are times that God gives us little glimpses, little stories. Sometimes maybe it's a, it's a story of a few chapters in length. Oftentimes it's a story of just one verse or a handful of verses and some historical event, some biblical event to biblical characters in the Old Testament, in the telling of their story, we can see in a picture form of a doctrine or a theological truth, oftentimes that we might read in the New Testament, in just one phrase or one sentence. God may state such and such in the book of Hebrews or <clears throat> maybe the book of Romans or in one of his letters to Timothy or uh, to one of the churches and, and teach us a truth that we can look back in the Old Testament and see that truth illustrated in the lives of some of his people. Now, it's not always that way, but I think uh, oftentimes it is. Now, in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, we find David, King David, a man after God's own heart, at the very end of his life. And we find him giving some of his last words. And then following that, beginning in about verse 8 or so, we read about David's mighty men. Do you remember uh, David's mighty men? Does that phrase stand out to you in any way? David had Psalm 30 or so mighty men. These were his, his most faithful soldiers. These were his most faithful followers. They had been with him through thick and thin. You might think of, think of them as being the original superheroes. 
okay? They didn't have, you know, colorful costumes and, and, and fly around and do that kind of thing. But I'm going to tell you, they did some things that just bordered on being supernatural and maybe even crossed that line. God used them sometimes in some supernatural ways. Now, among those mighty men, those 30 or so, there were three that were an inner circle. You might consider them to be the original SEAL team or something like that. These guys um, did some amazing things. There was Josheb Bashabeth, there was Eleazar, and there was Shammah. Their exact roles are never made completely clear in Scripture other than the fact that they were his inner circle. Like Jesus had Peter, James, and John. David had Josheb, Bashabeth, Eleazar, and Shammah. Now concerning these three men, we read these words. Follow along with me in your Bibles. It's page number 276 if you need to read out of one of the pew Bibles in the book rack in front of you. We find these words beginning in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachemanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah the son of Aji, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. We could continue reading, but we'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I want to draw your attention to these three mighty men, specifically to number two and number three, Eleazar and Shammah. And you know what? Don't you think Eleazar was very glad they didn't name him after his dad or his grandfather? His dad's name was Dodo. And his grandfather's name was Ahoha. I, I just have an idea that when he got to first grade, he was so glad his name was Eleazar. So all the other kids didn't call him Dodo or Ahohai. Well, all that to the side. The stories of Ele, Eleazar and Shammah had some similarities. It was during a time, and David's mighty men were especially active as his mighty men, during the early battles of David against the Philistines. They were a constant thorn in the flesh of the Israelites. And so uh, we find them repeatedly doing battle with the Philistines. In both cases, these men stood out in some of those battles among the Philistines. And also in both of their cases, we find when that battle took place that many of the rest of the Israelite army withdrew 
and left these guys standing there by themselves. It, it appears that Eleazar had King David by his side, but Shema had no one by his side. And so they were fighting battles solo, at least on these occasions. Now, here's what I want you to take note of. Now, understand, we have to be very careful with God's Word that we don't read things into the Bible, that we don't add to the story what is not there, that we don't try to spiritualize everything we read and make it say something that it doesn't. These two men fought battles that were bloody, the odds were against them, and we have the historical record in Scripture. Basically, that's what we have. But I think also it's one of those cases where it can illustrate a spiritual truth or a biblical truth, and I think there's a biblical truth that can be uh, illustrated by both of these men in their battles. First of all, Eleazar. Eleazar, it said, took a stand and he fought against the Philistines. And the Bible said he, he fought and he fought so long and the battle was so intense that he struck down the Philistines until his hand and his arm was weary and his hand clung to the sword. He had fought so hard and so tenaciously with all of his strength that, that his hand literally flow, froze up on the, on the handle, on the hilt of his sword. And when the battle was over, he could not let it go. Have you ever had that happen to you? Maybe not killing Philistines, but, but maybe working in your garden with, uh, with a tiller or with working in your yard with a weed eater or some other tool that you worked so hard and so long that, that when the work was over, you couldn't let go of the tool. Your hand had frozen up that, that maybe just finger by finger you had to pry it loose because your, your hand had just had, had, was clinging so hard to that tool. That's what happened to him here. He had, he had held so tenaciously, so tightly, so intently to his sword in fighting the enemy that his arm was weak and his hand was just frozen to that sword and he could not let it go. What does the New Testament teach us in Ephesians chapter 6 and in Hebrews chapter 4? Is our weapon as soldiers of the Lord? Do you remember? What is our only weapon? We have a shield of faith. We have a helmet of salvation. We have a breastplate of righteousness. We have the feet uh, on our feet. We are uh, the preparation of the gospel of peace to hold our ground and to fight our battle. But what is our only weapon? It's the Word of God. It's the Bible. That is our sword. It's called at least twice in Scripture the sword of the Spirit. I want you to think of Eleazar holding on to his sword, being an illustration for you and me in fighting spiritual battles and living for God and doing His will in this life as holding on to the Word of God. And we should hang on to the Word of God so uh, tenaciously, so fiercely. We should hang on to it with all of our strength 
so that when it comes time, maybe that a battle is over, we can't even begin to lay down our sword. It is a part of us. It is an extension of us. It is God's Word working in us and through us to accomplish God's purposes. Is that a fair illustration to make here? That means we need to read God's Word daily. We need to memorize God's Word. We need to meditate on God's Word, even in the night watches, as David said he did. We need to hang on to God's Word so much that, that when we see events taking place in the world, when things happen in our lives, sometimes that are disappointing, sometimes that are mystifying, sometimes that are troubling, we see everything through the Word of God, our sword of the Spirit, that we could not let go of it even if we wanted to. And then you have Shema. And God's army, the Israelites, were retreating from the enemy. And they were near this place called Lehi. And uh, we find that Shema found himself in a patch of lentils, a field of lentils. Do you know what lentils are? They're like peas. So this is a battle that took place in the pea patch. Okay? And in the retreating of God's people, Shammah got to this place, and he found himself in this patch. And you know what he said? He said, enough is enough. Here I take my stand. Here I will bleed and die if necessary, but I cannot run from the enemy any further, not one more step. It is here in this pea patch. It was time to stand and fight, not run. For Shema, this pea patch became sacred ground. It is not ground to be surrendered. It is something worth fighting for. And there fight he did. And the Bible says that God gave Israel, the people of God, a great victory. Why? Because Shammah stood his ground in that pea patch on that day. Now these two stories, I believe, give us a key truth from God's Word. When you blend the two together, you have this. It's going to be on the screen, I believe. There comes a time in a Christian's life, if he or she is going to be a faithful and good soldier of Jesus Christ, that all you can do is cling to the Word and stand your ground. Did you hear me? There comes a time in a Christian's life if you are going to count for anything for the cause of Christ, you're going to do it by clinging to the Word like Eleazar. And standing your ground like Shema. Now, why am I even talking about all of this? We've been studying from the book of Ephesians for a long time. But do you know what today is? I know the first thing you kids are thinking of. Halloween. Absolutely. Sandy, thank you for your contribution there. It is Halloween. It is the eve of All Saints Day. That's the history. But it is something beyond Halloween. And child of God, it is something, which by the way is 
based on all kinds of cult and pagan ideas. But I won't go any further with that. It's something else, child of God, that needs to mean more to you than the fact of being Halloween. It is Reformation Day. Today, October 31st, is Reformation Day. It celebrates the day 504 years ago, in 1517, that there was a simple Catholic monk, an instructor, a biblical teacher, who took a stand that could have cost him his life. Now, I know that many of you are like me. You were raised from the time that you were in elementary school, that when they ask you, do you remember the days back with kids? We who are old used to have to wear dog tags. I know that's like a strange thing to you, but we got dog tags every year to wear around our necks, and the school are the ones that provided for that. And they always ask, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? And we were taught to say, we're not either one. We're Baptist. We love that. And I appreciate that. And I understand the idea behind all of that. But oftentimes we grew up as those kind of Baptists shielded from a lot of true church history. Shielded from a lot of things that we were taught didn't apply to us. Like the great Protestant Reformation. Like people like Martin Luther or, or uh, John Wycliffe or some of these others, Latimer and Ridley, who were burned at the stake for their beliefs. But understand, we live in a world that's blessed because of these people. Whether you consider them a part of your spiritual heritage or not, we live in a world that has been blessed because some 504 years ago, Martin Luther went to the door of the Wittenberg, Germany church, and he nailed on that door a document with 95 theses, 95 propositions, and he was saying these things need to be talked about. He wasn't trying to accomplish any great movement. He was just saying these are things that need to be addressed. And it had to do with the fact that there was so much corruption within the clergy, especially at the top within the Catholic Church, that the church tortured people and killed people who were suspected of holding non-Orthodox beliefs, who burned people at the stake if they did not confess Christ or, or deny their, uh, what they considered aberrant teachings, that the church encouraged believers to pray to Mary or to pray to other saints instead of the one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And mostly in Luther's day because there were those who were sent out from Rome, from the mother church, sent out through the countryside selling indulgences. What is that? That is that if you had a loved one that was in purgatory, not yet heaven, not yet hell, if you gave enough money to the mother church, you could buy your loved one out of purgatory and into heaven. And there was a certain one of these, these fellows by the name of Tetzel that had worked the territory around Wittenberg. 
And it basically was known to say the minute your money drops in the box, the soul of your relative jumps out of purgatory straight into heaven. He was even said to have said it in this way. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. All of this was for a building project taking place back in Rome to build St. Peter's Basilica, which took a hundred years to build and is still one of the top tourist attractions in all the country of Italy today. It still stands. And it was bought at the expense of people who thought they were buying their loved ones into heaven. Now Martin Luther said, hey, we need to talk about this stuff. So he was called in, he was interrogated. He was told if he would recant, he could continue in his position and he would continue to have a place. He prayed about it, realizing that he was risking his own life And this was his answer. Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I shall not recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God. He was holding tenaciously to his sword, just like Eleazar. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against the conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. He could have been saying like Shema, this is my pea patch. This is where I'm standing. I can go no further down that road. I can do no other besides stand here God, help me. Now, folks, I'm going to say to you, that's not just a good story for 504 years ago. For the Lord's church needs a continuing reformation in every generation. You see, the truth of God and the solid biblical teachings of God's Word have a tendency to leak in our lives if we're not careful. Just like the children of Israel who came through the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land. They saw the miracles of God. They saw the providence of God. They saw the power of God. They saw the glory of God. They saw the majesty of God. But they got to the promised land. And within one generation, do you remember what the Bible is saying about their children, the next generation, the first generation, to grow up in the promised land provided by God? The end of the book of Judges says there arose a generation in Israel that did not know the God of their fathers. All it took was one generation for the truth to leak out. And that's why today we need a continuing reformation. That's why the very things that that men 500 years and women stood for, lived for, preached, and died for, shed their blood for, are things that we need to reaffirm today. 
that we need to reaffirm to our children and to our grandchildren and that we need to keep preaching today that we need to cling take hold of the word of God so tenaciously that we cannot we will not let it go and that we will define our place here we stand with these saints of the past here we stand today and declare these truths to be true well for the reformers though there were many things they addressed basically it all revolved around five statements you remember that don't you five solas five onlys there was first of all grace alone that salvation was by grace alone it is not by tradition it is not by church edict. It is not by what the priest or the post or the pro, uh, pope or the preacher or the pastor has to, has to say. It's by God alone. It is grace alone. And we've encountered some of these verses in recent weeks and looked at them in depth. For instance, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For, and here it is again, for by grace you have been saved. Folks, listen to me. If you make it to heaven, if you have any hope of making it to heaven, It'll be because of one thing and one thing alone. And it will be because of the very thing that one of those thieves hanging next to Jesus Christ, why he is in heaven today, he had nothing in his life to merit eternal life. He had nothing in his life to deserve the favor of God. But he made it to heaven because the man on the middle cross said he could come. And that's the only reason. And if you make it to heaven, it'll not be your church attendance that does it. It'll not be your good works that do it. It'll not be anything else that accomplishes it. The only thing that accomplishes it is because Jesus said you could be there. And he only said you could be there because he is a loving, a merciful, and a gracious God. 1 Peter 5.12 Peter says, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Make that your pea patch, the grace of God. I'll stand here and I will live and I will die here if necessary. It is a truth worth standing for, living for, and dying for. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become 
rich. It's a great exchange. He did that for us. The one who had everything and owned everything and was altogether righteous and holy and good was willing to leave all of that behind and take the place of rotten to the core sinners like you and like me. That's grace. That's grace. By grace alone. By faith alone. That's number two. By faith alone. Sola fide. Listen to what the scripture says again from Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through what? Through faith. Not grace through works. That, that's contradictory. Not faith through your goodness. That, that's counter to what grace is all about. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith itself is not even your own doing. <laughs> it's not something that you engineer. It is the gift of God, he said in verse 8. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one could boast. If salvation was by works, if it was by your ability to generate a faith within yourself all on your own without God giving it to you as a gift, then you deserve some of the credit. But you see, just as soon as you deserve some of the credit, then God loses the credit that is only His. For by grace... Through faith. Grace can only be accessed by faith. And that faith is a gift that God gives to people. By trust in the one who bestows such grace so freely. Listen to these words from the book of Romans chapter 4. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, by his effort, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But remember, God said that it was a gift, right? It was not something that we earned. And to the one who does not work, but believes or has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is why it depends on faith. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all. By grace alone, through faith alone. Let's illustrate it. I know you get tired of seeing this. You've seen this a dozen times, probably on these very screens. But I'll keep on doing it till you see it in your sleep. And it makes you cling to your sword till you can't let it go. Here is how all of that works. Let's put up the illustration, the first uh, line in that. You see, all religions of the world is either do or done. 
All religions, all, quote, faiths, all religious systems are based either on what you do in order to earn salvation or what Christ has already done to make available to you free of charge. It's either do or done. What are those two systems based on? Do is based on the idea or a system of merit, of merit. Come on, merit, there you are. What is merit? It is that I, in some way, I deserve or I uh, have earned or there's something in me that is worthy of something I have uh, done or something that I am in myself. That is what the religion of do is based on, on personal merit. In contrast to that, the faith of done is based on grace. It is based not on what I have done, but on what God has done. It's based on His goodness. As Paul tells the Romans that, that it was Jesus who did this, and so it is believing and trusting in Him that you have done and grace, do and merit. How do you gain merit? You do it through works. You do it through something that you do, whether it's being baptized, that some say if you're baptized, that will earn a spot in heaven for you. Or if you do enough good works, if you're good to your neighbor, if you do all these things, there's a lot of things that parade around under the umbrella even of Christianity that believes in works as a way of salvation. Join their church. Believe what they teach, their traditions and all the rest. In contrast to works, how do you tap into grace? Well, it can't be by works because works is a basis of, of merit. You earn it. But by grace means you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, but you get the blessings of it anyway. And so the way we uh, tap into grace, if you can put it that way, is by faith. Believing the message of the gospel. Believing the fact that I'm a sinner so lost in my sins that I'm actually spiritually dead in the eyes of God. Ephesians chapter 2, read it for yourself. And that if I'm dead in my sins... Dead men, guess what? Guess what? Dead men, dead women, can't do enough works to be saved. They're dead for Pete's sake. Dead people cannot even believe. Dead people cannot even generate faith. Unless, first of all, as Ephesians 2 says, God quickens them, makes them alive, and gives them the gift of faith so that they can return that faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the Christianity that is true Christianity is based on what Jesus has done, that it's ours by grace, that we benefit from that grace by faith. The other is what you do based on merit and works. And then the last line in all this, every religion of the world fits there. Every religion, even many things that call themselves Christian. On the other hand, true Christianity, true Christianity 
is this whole system of what Christ has done by grace through faith. That's why the Reformers fought for grace alone through faith alone. And it's in what? Number three, Christ alone. And that's what separates these two. Let's put up the next spot there. It is what Christ has done. The cross makes all the difference. The cross is the great divider of all the religions of the world. The cross is the great divider, listen to me, that not only separates true and false religion, true and false Christianity. Listen to me now. The cross is what divides families. You say, wait a minute. I thought the cross unites families. Well, it will if those family members will put their faith in Jesus Christ. But there are times it divides families. That right down through every home, the shadow of the cross is shown and it separates the believers from the unbelievers, the faithful from the unfaithful, those who have experienced grace from those who are rejecting God's grace. The cross makes all the difference. So point number three, Christ alone. Christ alone. Not Christ in the church. Not Christ in the apostles. Not Christ in the prophets. As faithful as all of those men were and women. But Christ alone. Jesus said this in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, that's a promise, come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way and you know the truth about where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him in verse 6, Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, not one way. I am the truth, not one truth. And today we hear a lot about, well, what is your truth? Can I tell you something? I love every one of you, but I don't give a flip for what your truth is. Because your truth, whatever it is, how you choose to interpret life and interpret life's experiences and what God is or is not doing, however you choose to interpret, really doesn't amount to a hill of beans. There's only one truth, and it's God's truth. And we have to get in line with God's truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. You don't have the right to make your own truth. I am the life. There is no life apart from me. No one can come to the Father except through me. 
The apostles believed that and preached that. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they said this, when they had to draw a line in the sand and take their stand in their pea patch before the Sanhedrin and others that were threatening to take their lives, they said this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said this in the most famous and best known verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Romans 10, 9, Paul tells the Romans, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Lord, and you believe in that with your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and fourth, Scripture alone. The Reformers and Luther lived in a time when all kinds of edicts by the church, all kinds of councils that the church where leaders come together and make certain decisions about faith and practice in the Christian life, that all of these other writings, all of these other doctrinal interpretations became equivalent to Scripture. And oftentimes held even greater importance than the Bible itself. Just like today in world religions, people will say, for instance, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, that, well, we believe the Bible, but it is the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine of the Covenants that actually takes precedence in their lives, not the Bible. I can, pick, I can tell you, I can take the Bible that the Mormons say they believe in and lead a Mormon to Jesus. They just don't believe in that stuff like they believe in their other writings. And that's why the Reformers said it is Scripture alone that guides our lives. It is Scripture alone that is the ultimate authority. It is Scripture and the Word alone that should direct our lives. It is the Scripture, it is the Bible that is the sword of the Spirit that we are to cling to, to the point that our hand can never let it go. Why? Because Paul's second letter to Timothy says this, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings is the Bible. On another occasion, he says uh, that uh, you would hold to the same faith that your mother and your grandmother held to and taught you. Parents, are you teaching your children the Word of God? Grandparents, are you teaching your grandchildren the Word of God? He goes on to say all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God, that the child of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it is a discerner. It is a comprehender. It is a, a revealer of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Paul tells the Ephesians, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm like Shema in a pea patch in Lehi. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. As I said at the beginning, there comes a time in a Christian's life, yours and mine, that if we're going to be faithful, and if we're going to be good soldiers, all we can do is cling to the Word and stand our ground. Last, and we close, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as taught in Scripture alone, and ultimately for God's glory alone. Sola Deo Gloria. All glory be to God. Will you listen for just a moment to these words by Paul Tripp? I apologize for the lengthiness of this, but you need to hear it. Because I think we talk about the glory of God, but we don't really know what it is. So when the Bible speaks of God's glory... What is it talking about? The doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, the beauty, and the perfection of all that He is. In everything that He is and in everything that He does, God is greater than human description. Every attribute and action of God is stunningly beautiful in every way. Each characteristic of God and every accomplishment from His hand is totally perfect. This is what we mean when we talk about God's glory. The stunning reality of this universe is that there exists one who is the greatest, the most beautiful, the most perfect in every way. God is gloriously great, gloriously beautiful, and gloriously perfect. There is none like Him. 
He has no rivals. And no valid comparisons can be made to him. He is the great other in a category of his own beyond our ability to estimate, understand, or describe. Every part of God is glorious in every way possible. There's nothing more to be said. And because God is glorious in every possible way, He alone stands in this vast universe as the only one who is worthy of the worship, surrender, and love of every human heart. God and God alone is worthy of your praise. God and God alone is worthy of your devotion, of your service. Not you, not me, not some so-called church or man-made religion. God and God alone. In Romans 11, Paul begins to close his letter with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And that sentence comes with an exclamation mark. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then when he truly does wind down that letter, he says this in chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and by the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Church, May we, as God's people, as Christ followers, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, may we always be found clinging to His Word and standing our ground by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and in Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. May we, like those saints of 500 years ago, say, here we stand. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. May it find its root deep in our hearts. May it compel us and give us courage to follow you, whatever the cost, whatever the price. Thank you for the great men and women of old who took their stand in their generation. And may we be faithful to take our stand in ours. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. 
If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.